verse 67 through 80. Thank you again to the musicians and, and those that cooked this morning. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to partake, so I'm the poor because I didn't have biscuits and gravy. And for you Southerners that have yet to have biscuits and gravy, um, you don't know what heaven in a plate looks like or tastes like, so please correct that. And, and if you haven't as well, if you, if you live up north and you don't know what grits are as well, correct that problem as well. Uh, both are amazing. Saddened that I wasn't able to, to get that today. All right, Luke chapter one, verse 67 down through 80. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inspired word. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guard our feet into the way of peace. And all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. <clears throat> Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for your word, and thank you for your spirit. And so I pray that you might unite now your spirit to your people. May our hearts rejoice over all that is taking place here today. The singing, the reading of scripture, the fellowship over a meal, the reading of your word and the proclamation of it. May it all work together to liven our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're in the midst of a series, an Advent series, known as the Carols of Christmas. These are the four songs in Luke. Last week, we looked at Mary's song, known um, simply as the Magnificat. And um, today, we're going to look at Zachariah's song, known as the Benedictus. Now, Scott mentioned last week that I, in my sermons from time to time, will mention uh, Latin words. I want you all to know I am not a Latin scholar. I've had the equivalent of two years of Latin. That in no way makes me a Latin scholar. But if you give me a, uh, a lexicon of sorts, I can work my way through a Latin text. And so um, I did not name those, uh, these particular hymns. These are 
uh, were given because of the Latin Vulgate, and it's the first word of every hymn. If you remember, um, Mary's hymn began, my soul magnifies the Lord, hence Magnificat, and Zachariah's a song begins with blessed, hence the Benedictus. So that's where those uh, come from, and we're gonna look at the rest in a little bit more. Now, the whole point of this text is the visitation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you see it um, at the beginning of the text, verse number 68, and then you see it at the end of the text, verse 78. And uh, there's one thing I wanna point out to you immediately. Notice that in verse number 68, the word visited is in the past tense, or what is known as the aorist tense. It means just something that has happened in the past. And then you'll notice in verse 78, it says the sunrise shall visit meaning the future tense, what is to come. That's very important for this one reason. Uh, you might remember in the book of Revelation, it says that Jesus is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And it simply means that he is the totality of our existence. He reigns supreme in the world. And there is nothing that can thwart his purposes and his plans. Well, here, by mentioning that God visits us, in the past tense, in the future tense. Zechariah is doing the same. He's talking about the redemption of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that his redemption is complete and full and total, that God covers every aspect of our being and our nature, that there's nothing wanting in him, that when he came to earth, he came to deal with the whole man, intellectually, spiritually, psychologically, physically, you could go down the line. It simply means that Christ, when he came, left nothing deficient, that everything is found in him and him alone. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a glorious thought to start off with because the Bible says that he visited his people. The, world, the word there comes from the Greek word episkopos, where we get the word episcopal or bishop. It's one who comes to care for your soul in a most intimate and profound way, that he knows you, the Bible says, like no other one knows you. Nothing is hidden from his presence. He knows what's going on in your mind right now. I might not, I wish I had that power, that'd be awesome. I know what you're thinking. Uh, sometimes I tell my kids that, but I'm lying. I don't know what they're thinking. I, I can't discern what's going on in their mind. Sometimes I look at them and say, I know you're lying. I do not. I do not know that because I don't have that power. But one of the glorious realities of Scripture is this. God knows you. There's nothing hidden from him before you. He knows your struggles, even though you may never voice it. He knows exactly where you hurt, even though you might deny it. The whole point of this visitation is that God never left salvation up to someone else. He didn't contract it out. He didn't deal with us in a sanitized way. You know, sometimes when you go uh, to do something messy, you have to put on gloves. I'm like that, I, I get suited up. I, sometimes I think I have a weak stomach if I have to do something particularly gross. I, I try to put on a mask and, and maybe some, some gloves because I don't wanna get my hands dirty. Except when we had kids, you know, I, I didn't do that when I was changing my own kids' diapers, that's a little different. But, but in general, 
In general, I like to keep things kind of clean. I like to deal with things in a sanitized way. And what, from the very beginning, Luke, uh, uh, sorry, Zacharias is saying in this song is this, God doesn't deal with us in a sanitized way. The Bible says he entered into the world to deal with your messiness. He didn't save us by divine fiat. Let us be saved, the Bible, he could have said, but he didn't. He came to earth. He took on human flesh. He got his hands dirty in a way that most of us inside here would never dream of doing. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords were set in a manger and endured the filth and the pain of this world, eventually ending up on a cross beaten and battered and broken. That's the kind of savior you need to worship, someone who gets his hands dirty and doesn't deal with us in a sanitized way. Praise God we have a savior like that. You should be rejoicing daily that your savior loves you that much to get his hands dirty with you. Because I don't know if you know this, but you're a pretty messy person. That's a pretty messy person. Now, um, you'll be happy to know after that elongated introduction, I only have one point. <laughs> Some of you are rejoicing. Yes, finally, we can get out on time. Not so fast. It's a long point. <laughs> so here's the point that I want to make. The visitation of Jesus Christ was done for a purpose. He didn't just come and hang out. You know, sometimes you have friends that stop over by your house and they, they come over and they, they start talking to you and you're wondering, why are you here? What's your purpose? Some of you have friends like that. Maybe you're the friend like that, where you just show up for no good reason, eating your friend's uh, food and just hanging out as if you have all the time in the world to spare. Now, that's not Jesus. Jesus came with a purpose. And the purpose is clear in this passage. We were in darkness. In fact, three times he indicates our condition. And the condition is found in verse number 79. He says, first of all, we sat in darkness. I know how that feels. Uh, two days ago, or I think one day ago, uh, I, was, I woke up and our house was in darkness. Now, I know we're the kind of people that pay our bills on time, so I didn't think I forgot to pay the electrical bill. But, we're, but when I sat up, I noticed I sat in darkness, and darkness is disorienting. And the scripture says that for us, as God's people, we sat in darkness. Whether you did anything to create that darkness or not, the scripture is clear. Christ, when he came to earth, came to an earth that was darkened by sin. Notice they continue. We were in the shadow of death. Sound familiar? In Psalm 23, it says, we walk sometimes through the valley of the shadow of death. And then notice at the very end, to guide our feet in the way of peace, meaning this, that we are in chaos. Notice the threefold aspect of our condition. We were in darkness, we were in the shadow of death, and we were in complete chaos. That's why Christ came to earth. And there are times when people confuse that reality. They say that Christ came uh, purely for relational aspects, to have fellowship with us, and why that's a secondary cause, that's not the primary cause. 
And then some people might say that Christ came for therapeutic reasons, to make us feel a little better about ourselves and to get us over the hump. But I'm here to tell you that's not why Christ came. Christ came because you and I were in darkness, full stop, period. And if you think that's not the reason why he came, you don't understand the arc of scripture. In Genesis uh, chapter three, when Adam and Eve sinned, at the very core pro promise that was given to them was a redeemer would come. Why would that redeemer come? Because the world for the first time was plunged into darkness, into darkness. Do not be fooled. We are in darkness. We are walking in the valley of the shadow of death. And this world is in chaos. Now, I don't have to convince you all. There's some of you inside here today that is walking in darkness. You're walking in the darkness of depression. You're walking in the darkness of sin. You're walking in the darkness of doubt. And you're walking in the darkness of fear. You know the darkness because you live it every day. And what comfort does this passage give to us? It gives us tremendous comfort. First, it gives us the comfort in knowing that Christ came to redeem his people. Look at it in verse number 68. It says, uh, Zechariah says at the very beginning, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Underline the word redeemed, it's a wonderful word. It means to buy back, to take us out of bondage, to release us from a debt that we cannot be, that cannot be paid. It's the understanding of slavery and the whole point of the word redeemed is to remind God's people that we are locked up and that there's no way for us to get ourselves out of it but for the grace and mercy of God. That's the point. And notice it says that he redeemed his people again, past tense. Now, sometimes in the Greek, they'll use past tense to indicate, even though something hasn't happened yet, to indicate the certainty of it. And what is Zechariah saying? That even though you don't feel redeemed because of the nature of your sin, it is certain that you will be redeemed because he put it in the past tense. And it doesn't matter what your sin is. It doesn't matter what you might be going through. The promise of this text and this beautiful hymn is this. Beloved, you will be redeemed. There's this wonderful story of Augustine, who, as many of you know, uh, was the bishop of uh, Hippo um, in northern Africa. And Augustine had a pretty checkered past before he came to Christ. He was, he committed uh, um, uh, adultery and, and fornication, slept around quite a bit. And one day after Augustine had been redeemed by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was walking in a town that he would often walk in when he was having his wild days. And a woman came up to him and began to hug him and kiss him. And he politely pull, pushed the woman off and started walking again. And the woman came back again to try and get him to go to bed with her. And he gently pushed the woman back again. And as he walked off, she yelled out, Augustine, it is I! To which Augustine turned around and looked at her and said, I know, but it is not I. 
I've been redeemed. I'm different. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I've been changed. Is that you in here today? Have you tasted the redeeming power of Christ? Have you been for many years locked up in a prison that you cannot get yourself out of? You need to know and you need to hear today that God is still in the redeeming business. That no matter what your sin is, no matter what your condition is, no matter what is taking place in your life right now, the glorious message of Scripture is that our Lord still redeems. Notice with me the second hope and I think glorious reality of this text is found in verse number 67. He has raised up the horn of salvation. Do you know what the word horn of salvation means? It means the power of Christ. It's an indication of his power that he's mighty and strong to save. That when you and I are in darkness and we see no way out, and fear is gripping us, and doubt is gripping us, and sin is overcoming us. He has the power to lift the darkness. Do you believe that? Luther believed that. The night when, before Luther faced the Council of Wittenberg for putting up his thesis, Luther stayed up all night begging God for his power. Luther was so overcome with fear, so overcome by the darkness of what faced him, that he began to tremble, and all he can do is cry out to God for help. That morning, as Luther faced the council, he was being forced to recant. Luther, shaking, quietly says, said, I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. And actually, God did help him. God gave him the boldness to stand up amidst very fraught situations. Do you still believe in the power of God? It's one of those glorious realities of Scripture you and I seem to forget. We walk around as people that don't have any power. We walk around as people that have forgotten that we serve a mighty God. We walk around impotent begging this world to give us answers. When the Bible clearly says that the Holy Scriptures provide the answers we need, and He has left us the power of the Holy Spirit, but if we only believe, if we are like Luther and humbly come before Him and say, God, I'm weak, I need your help, and watch Him do it. Watch Him do it. You don't have to rely on the power and security of this world. God has raised up for his people a horn of salvation to help us. Notice with me the third thing. It's found in verse number 74. God has promised us and swore us by his covenant to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, hears it, might serve him without fear. Might serve him without fear. That's the point of God's redeeming grace, that we might serve him. Another word for that is the word worship, that we might worship him without fear. If you drop down to verse number 78, you'll notice that 
Zachariah stops talking about Jesus and he starts talking about his very own son and that his son came to prepare the way. And the way that he's talking about is this, that, that uh, here John the Baptist came to remove all the obstacles that are in front of God's people so that we might worship him without fear. And there are many obstacles that come in front of God's people. Notice in the text, one of the chief obstacles is the enemies of God. Inside verse number 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all of those that hate us. Now, right now, maybe none of you inside here today can pinpoint an enemy that's trying to kill you, but I promise you that there are people all over this world that name the name of Christ, that are being persecuted for their faith. And this text is such a blessing to them that God would deliver them from their enemies. And that's one way. But sometimes God needs to remove the obstacle that's us. Do you know that the biggest impediment to you worshiping God without fear is you? You might not know this, but if you study the life of Zechariah, it's pretty interesting. You can go to chapter, at the beginning of chapter one and read a story. But Zechariah was a Levite. And you know, the two, uh, Levites had a bunch of tasks, but the two main tasks that Levites had, the first one was they were worship leaders. Did you know that? That's the first thing. The second one, which is a minor task, but still important, is they often pronounce the benediction over God's people. Now, if you put those two together, something ironic happened at the beginning of uh, Luke chapter one. As Zechariah was worshiping, and as he was pronouncing the benediction over God's people, an angel showed up to him and said, hey, Zechariah, you remember all those prophecies you would tell people about? You remember Malachi saying that he'll raise up one just like Elijah? You remember every time you go inside the temple, you tell people that God is coming? Well, he's here. And you know what Zechariah did? Zechariah said, well, wait a minute, how can these things be? Are you sure? Are you sure that my son will be the front runner, forerunner? Are you sure that Messiah is gonna come? And do you know what God did to him? God sent him to a silent retreat. And for nine months, Zachariah couldn't talk, and also he couldn't listen. And here's the point, because I don't want you to miss this. Zechariah was worshiping God and leading God's people in worship. And he was so blind to the visitation of God that God had to say, you know what? I think you're a little bit too busy. Why don't you take a nine month sabbatical? And in that time, you won't hear anything and you can't say anything to anybody. And maybe after that, you'll learn to worship me. And what were the first words that came out of Zechariah's mouth? They're right here in the passage. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Zechariah's biggest problem was this. He didn't worship God in spirit and in truth. That he was too busy doing things for God than actually worshiping God. And let me say this to here today. One of the biggest ills of the modern church is that you and I are far too busy to worship God. 
It's one of the biggest ills of the modern church. We're far too busy working. We're far too busy going to events. We're far too busy having a social life. We're far too busy doing all the things instead of the most important thing, which is worshiping the living God. But the good news is God has a way of getting your attention. And for Zechariah, he couldn't talk for nine months. He couldn't hear for nine months. But for you, the obstacle might be different. And because God loves you, and because he desires to be in fellowship with you, you better believe that whatever obstacle you put your finger on, he will move heaven and earth to get it away from you. With Uzziah and, sorry, not with Uzziah, in Isaiah chapter 6, Uzziah's biggest problem, I mean, Isaiah's biggest problem was that he loved Uzziah. And what did God have to do? God had to remove him. And Isaiah chapter 6 begins by saying, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now, let me ask you this question. What, what's the obstacle for you worshiping the Lord? What does God have to remove from your life in order for you to truly worship him in spirit and in truth? For, for Isaiah, it was Uzziah. For Paul, God had to blind him on the road to Damascus so he'd be able to see God clearly and fully. And that's true of all of us in here today. I want you to think about it because it's often the case. God has to remove the barriers from us in order for us to worship him. And lastly, notice the tender mercies of God. It's found in verse number 78. It says, when Christ comes, he comes to bring the tender mercies of God, visited on his people. The word for tender mercies there is not the normal word for mercy that we know. It actually has the idea of your inward parts, almost like your heart. It means to have a heart of compassion. And one of the glorious realities of this text is that we have a Savior who always has a heart of compassion towards his people walking alongside of us. He's a compassionate Savior that despite our brokenness and pain, the Bible says that he will never leave us in darkness. William Cowper, I just read a biography by him, or it wasn't by him, it was written about him, and William Cowper was a hymn writer. He's written many well-known hymns, but one of Cowper's biggest problems, if you can call it that, it wasn't really a problem, but one of his biggest maladies was that Kuiper, uh, Cowper often got depressed. In fact, he struggled with depression his entire life. Cowper on numerous of occasions tried to kill himself, albeit unsuccessfully. He was so bad that he had to have round-the-clock care because he was in complete darkness. And in some of the journals they found of Cowper, one of the things that he said was that the only thing that keeps him going is knowing that even though he is broken and depressed, that there was a compassionate God next to him, helping him along his way. And maybe that's you here today. You need to hear that, that we have a compassionate God that's always with us. Now, there's some of you here that are probably looking at me and say, Pastor, if that's the case, 
Why does he often take so long to come? Why does he take so long to heal? If he knows I'm broken, why doesn't he fix me now? Why did he have to wait thousands of years to come to Bethlehem? Couldn't he have done it right away? Why doesn't he heal me from this sin that I'm battling with? Why doesn't he heal me from my depression? Why doesn't he heal me from my doubts? Why is he taking so long, Pastor? I don't know. It's interesting to me that when um, Jesus' friend died, Lazarus, he tarried. And then he showed up after Lazarus was practically stinking in the grave. And Lazarus' sister asked the same thing. Jesus, why did you take so long? Why didn't you come right away? And Jesus really didn't answer her question. Instead, he stood in front of the tomb. And the very first thing he did was wept. And let me say this, don't believe for one moment that Jesus doesn't weep over your sorrows and pain. Jesus didn't just show up and say, watch me work. I got this. No reason to cry. No reason to get crazy. I'm king of kings and lord of lords. He didn't do that. First thing he did was he wept. And then he stood back and he called out, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus did. Here's the point I want to leave with you, and this is, again, such an important point. I don't know why he takes so long, but you better believe when he shows up, it's right on time. And you better believe when he shows up, it's with power. And you better believe when he shows up, it's going to be taken care of. And you can guarantee that. That's what the Bible says. That's how my Jesus rolls. He doesn't play games when he shows up. He's right there. Now, the Bible says that we ought to walk by faith and not by sight. And that's not because Jesus wants us to turn off our brains. You have to understand, it has nothing to do with that. It's a way of saying you can't see the way I see, and you don't have the ability to bishop and care for your soul the way I do. I'm in charge, and I will act on your behalf. There was a blind woman one day in the fall of 1874. She was in a flat in lower Manhattan. And this blind woman answered the door after she heard a knock on the door. And on opening the door, she felt a folded piece of paper pressed up in her hands by someone who left without a word. It turned out to be a bunch of money. The woman had not paid, hadn't, didn't have the money to pay for her rent. And so she simply prayed for the Lord to supply her need. And here it was, in her hands, the money she needed. Later on that day, Fanny Crosby wrote these words as she reflected on what the Lord had just did for her. All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? For I know whatever befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. I know sometimes you feel a little blind. That's okay. You have a Savior that sees for you. 
And I promise you, his eyes are the only eyes that matter because he sees you and he will come and he will care for you. I promise you that. Father, we thank you so much that in this glorious hymn of faith, Zachariah left for us. What a powerful reminder that you have visited your people. I thank you so much for the hope that's found in the gospel and the sweet reminder that even though it feels like sometimes we're not seen, your eyes are not just on the sparrow, they are fixed firmly on us. And may your people today remember that. In Jesus' precious holy name, amen.